0: We can't really do too much about our genetic constitution, but we can do uh, a significant amount about environmental risk factors. The neurons in the brain seem to be starved of glucose, and as as a result of this, they seem to die. But all of these diseases, in some way or another, are linked to uh, disruptions in systemic energy metabolism. They damage the respiration in the mitochondria of the cells, forcing the cell into a fermentation metabolism, which then produces reactive oxygen species, which then produce the mutations that people find in these tumor cells.
1: Ryan Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncie is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncie's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic.
0: Ryan Muncie is my go to guy. Ryan Muncie is the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Ryan Muncie's an innovator.
1: You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Muncie. Thank you for being here. Thank you for spending time with us today. And I've got a really cool show for you. We've been on a roll lately here on the OPP. We've been fortunate to have some amazing guests. Uh, I am incredibly grateful for you guys being here listening and for these guests spending their time and sharing their expertise with us so that we can bring you such amazing shows. Uh, looking back at a couple of the past episodes, you know, we just published one with Dr. Cyrus Raji on uh, Alzheimer's and brain imaging. Amazing episode. If you didn't catch that, go back and listen to it. Of course, we had Catherine Arnston on talking about, uh, spirulina and chlorella, the benefits of algae as a superfood. Uh, about two weeks ago, we had Eric Remensberger on the show. Eric survived cancer. He was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer, healed his own cancer without modern, uh, normal standard-of-care medicine, no radiation, no chemotherapy. Part of the research that he looked into that led him down that path was by a man named Thomas Seyfried. Our guest on the show today is none other than Thomas Seyfried. Uh, Thomas is uh, a leading cancer researcher and a biology professor at Boston College. Um, His research has been included in some of the big books circulating now in the uh, the cancer sort of revolution, if you want to call it, Tripping Over the Truth, is a book that cites Seafried's research quite a bit. Um, Dr. Seafried has partnered with one of our friends here on the OPP and somebody that you probably know very well, Dominic Diagostino. Uh, But Dr. Seafried's research focuses on mechanisms by which metabolic therapies can manage chronic disease such as epilepsy, neurodegenerative lipid storage diseases, and cancer. The metabolic therapies include caloric restriction, fasting, ketogenic diets. We're going to talk about all of these on the show today. In the case of cancer, these therapies target and kill tumor cells while enhancing the physiological health of normal cells. The neurochemical and genetic mechanisms of these phenomena are under investigation in novel animal models and include the processes of inflammation, cellular physiology, angiogenesis, and lipid biochemistry." That's a pretty cool bio, if I can say so myself. So. Dr. Is, uh he's, he's very passionate, very knowledgeable. This is a really cool podcast. I know you're going to love it. Uh, before we get to Dr. Seafried, a couple of housekeeping notes. As always, you guys know this by now. Please go to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. Let us know how much you love this show. When we read your review on the air, we will hook you up with free Natural Stacks products. All you have to do is email me when you hear your review read. Gotti 646, email me, ryan at naturalstacks.com. I'm about to read your review. Five stars, top five podcast, awesome topics and guests. Ryan does a great job asking questions and getting the most out of his guests. For helpful information, listeners can apply to improve their lives. A must listen and subscribe if you want to improve your health, fitness, or overall quality of life. Gotti 646. Thank you for your support, thanks for listening, thanks for the review. Email me, Ryan, at naturalstacks.com. We'll hook you up with a little care package. Uh, For everybody else listening, uh, there will be some things in this show today that you want to share with people you know. Please, do just that. Grab the little link um, in your podcast listening device, whether it's Stitcher or iTunes. uh, Wherever you listen, there's a shareable link. Grab that link, text it, email it, share it on social media. Get the word out to people you know who will benefit from and need to hear the things that we're talking about on the show today and the OPP in general we appreciate you being here. We appreciate you sharing this information. You know, that's how we ultimately help more people. And that's what this is about. Uh, last piece of information, make sure you go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the blog post for this, along with the video version and all of the links to the studies and resources that Dr. Sefried is going to mention. All right, I'm done. Enjoy the show. Dr. Sefried, thanks for hanging out with us today.
0: Well, thank you. Nice to be here.
1: Yeah, so I've been looking forward to this uh, for quite some time. I I think, as I just told you before we hit record, I want to start with a few kind of broad questions on some of your uh, expertise in gene and environmental interactions, which our audience may recognize as epigenetics. If I had to, you know, kind of put your hand to the fire and say, what's the single biggest lifestyle choice that we can control in that area. What would you say?
0: Well, it's probably uh food is, is one. Uh, maybe it maybe probably maybe the most important one, but it's certainly lifestyle, certain lifestyle issues, exercise and things like this I think are probably um of the of the major importance, at least the ones that we we can control. Um, you know, and that, those, those are fairly broad, broad areas, um, very difficult, um, to control these in the environment in which we live in a Westernized society, um, where we are challenged, um, every day by the kinds of, um, foods and exposures we have, but, but if we're aware of these things, at least we have some level of control.
1: Right. Now, in the realm of things that we may have less control over, um, sort of environmental type things, what has you most concerned?
0: Well, I mean, we can control. Uh, if we are aware of our uh, hazards in the environment, you you do your best to try to avoid them. Um, but I think what we, what we have the least control over is our genetics. I mean, we can't, we can't do anything about that. Uh, we inherit genes from our parents. And, um, and if you know uh, that you are at risk uh, for a particular disease, and you know that there are environmental factors that can reduce your risk Despite the fact that you may have a genetic predisposition, at least you have some level of control. Not to say it's a perfect control, but at least it's some level of control.
1: So would it be safe to assume then that you are a fan of uh, things like 23andMe or or some sort of genetic uh, code research where where we can look into our own genes and and use that to sort of plan our choices and, and lifestyle?
0: No, not really. I mean even if we were to know about it what you know um there's not much we can do about our genetics if, but if everyone were to assume that they had some genetic risk factor for say type 2 diabetes <coughs> whether or not they they do or not just just challenging yourself to try to avoid those things that would put you at risk uh, mo- most of the chronic diseases that afflict people um are uh, controllable. Um, you know, some people you say, wow, some, some of these people can smoke all day long, they, they eat the worst kinds of foods, they don't exercise, and yet they're disease free, for the most part. Those people inherit genes that protect them against all this. There's very few of those kinds of people around. But the ones you find, oh, oh, if that guy can do it, so can I. Uh, Wrong. You may not be able to do that. That guy just happens to have all the genes that protect him. Uh, The rest of us probably don't have that whole constellation of genes. Um, So, you know, because there's guys that you live, oh, this guy's 95. There was a guy the other day, he's 102 years old, jumping out of an airplane, right? I mean, he has a very powerful genetic constitution. Most people don't live to be 102, much less jumping out of airplanes. Um, He's very fortunate to have a genetic constitution that's protected him against all kinds of environmental risks for his entire life. The rest of us, most of us, don't have that. So I I don't think we can play... We can't really do too much about our genetic constitution, but we can do uh, a significant amount about uh, uh, environmental risk factors. That's, I think, we have control over that. So if one were to assume that, hey, listen, I, I have a predisposition to Alzheimer's, cri- diabetes, and cancer, um, you know, any one of those are going to kill me. Uh, what am I going to do in my in my life to try to reduce my risk? And um, And those are personal choices. And unfortunately, most people roll the dice and say, hopefully it's not going to be me. Right. So, I don't have to make those difficult choices, Right. But, you know. Th- these are some of the things. These are more philosophical things than actually, you know, the, than actual uh, situations.
1: Well, what about the the neurodegeneration front? That's another area where you have some interest. Is there something specifically that you like to focus on to reduce to reduce risk for neurodegeneration?
0: Well, I, I think the the most common neurodegenerative disease is Alzheimer's disease. And um, that is largely an environmental problem, a gene environmental problem to be exact. Um, There are very few people, maybe less than 5%, that actually inherit a particular mutation that's going to make or give them a high risk to to have Alzheimer's disease. Then there there are other uh, inherited factors that put you at risk only if you are in the in, in a provocative environment, an inflammatory uh, state of health, uh, together with ApoE4 mutation uh, would increase your risk um, for developing Alzheimer's disease. But uh, a majority of people who get uh, Alzheimer's disease um, don't appear to have any genetic risk factors. So, uh, And then they're always trying to find others. Um, but. So this tells us that that disease itself is largely due to environmental factors. And what are these environmental factors that would put you at risk for Alzheimer's disease? Actually, it's uh, again, uh, neuroinflammation. Um, it, it's very interesting that uh, Alzheimer's disease is kind of a hypometabolic disease. Um, Blood sugars are reduced. The neurons in the brain seem to be starved of glucose. And as as a result of this, they seem to die, leading then to the pathology that people recognize. Um, So so, uh, that's an interesting concept. And there's ways to get around that to feed neurons through ketosis that could protect the neurons from degeneration. And uh, people uh, might want to uh, consider that in their lifestyle. Most people who develop Alzheimer's, you know, they're not they're not sane one day and and un- uncognitive the next. It's a it's a slow progress over over decades of of, of exposures. The ultimate result is you know um, a, a cognitive decline and. Dementia. There's many different forms of dementia. They're not all Alzheimer's disease. So there's prefrontal dementias, and there's a, there's a variety of other of these kinds of, of diseases. These are neurodegenerative diseases that could be delayed uh, through proper proper diets and lifestyles. I, I think this is. Now there are other neurodegenerative diseases like CTE, the football players. So, so it, it, uh, b- boxers and football players and these kinds of athletes. So if you want to avoid that, you know, don't play those games. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just this kind of a thing, right? <laughs> right. Right. You want CTE, you play football. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we actually just recorded and, and published a podcast, um, a few weeks ago and that was with Dr. Cyrus Raji. And we talked about, um, 110 out of 111 brains donated to the, uh, brain research from NFL players, uh, showed pathological signs of, or pathologically diagnosed CTE. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, all right. So, so something you said there, I want to sort of dig into a little bit more where you said that in brains with Alzheimer's, they're sort of starved of glucose. I understand, and I think our, our audience understands the difference in fat and glucose as fuel pathways. So I, I, my, my question immediately was going to be, you know that that sort of starved of glucose makes me kind of it's curious because I know we're going to talk a lot about ketosis today when we get into uh, cancer and the metabolism of cancer. but what is it about those? neural cells that, okay, if, if they become starved of glucose, say somebody was following a high carbohydrate diet or, or, um, you know, they were carb dependent for their fuel sources. What is it about that where they would develop some sort of dysfunction or disordered metabolism of that glucose? Yet those same cells would not have disordered metabolism of ketones
0: yeah well it has to do it has to do with the transporters that allow the fuels to get into the brain so um the brain is is uses glucose primarily uh on a daily basis um the, Our brain sucks in more glucose than any other organ system in the body um you know twenty or twenty two percent of the entire metabolism of our body is is devoted to the function of the brain. The brain can also use another fuel, ketones, um, because if we stop eating and blood sugar goes down, you know, we don't fall down and become unconscious. Uh, we start we start transitioning to an alternative fuel gradually as glucose is is less and less. Uh, the body will burn fats to produce ketones. These ketones come through a different transporter system; they're not dependent on the glucose transporter. They're dependent on a on a a monocarboxylic acid transporter that brings in ketones and they serve as an alternative fuel for glucose and they and they are much more powerful in their ability to generate energy and uh also um they um uh uh, they generate fewer free radical damage they give a much higher efficiency of energy whereas the in say Alzheimer's disease, there's problems in glucose transporters, at least there's some reports to say that. Um, therefore, the prime fuel is is being uh, is being de- deprived. Um, there's also an interesting uh, connection from the National Cancer Institute questioning the um you know why people with alzheimer's disease their risk for cancer is less. And it's kind of an interesting, what they call the provocative question. And um, it's known that Alzheimer's, you know, you have a starvation of glucose, a hypometabolic state. Well, you and whereas cancer is just the opposite; you need a lot of glucose to drive the, to, to drive the disease. So if your body is hypometabolic, it's going to be unlikely—not completely. There's people, you know, just in general, it's going to be less likely you'll develop a tumor that requires a high energy of glucose and you can't develop that your brain is dying but your tumor would not be able to grow also so you have this <clears throat> in one one says the, the neurons are starving of glucose but you can't develop cancer <coughs> excuse me on the other hand um, tumor cells need glucose and they can't grow too well um, so so it's a very interesting but all of these diseases in some way or another are linked to uh disruptions in systemic energy metabolism so uh in one case it might be one molecule in another case it might be another molecule so so um yeah so the brain is flexible it can burn it can burn glucose and ketones and um and the liver of course goes quite active when blood sugar goes down because the liver can make glucose from within and um you know that that will provide the brain most of that glucose is going to the brain the rest of it is provided by ketones um and this prevents us from going unconscious so um when blood sugars become reduced uh now if you take someone who is not in therapeutic ketosis and you know give them insulin uh, it clears the sugar right out of their blood and they become unconscious you know this is uh, an insulin surge some of these people with diabetes have these kinds of okay. kinds of reactions um, but if, if a person is in therapeutic ketosis and then gets the the insulin, um, oftentimes at least we've done it in the animals and the mice, uh, they don't go unconscious because their brain is actually burning an alternative fuel. So even if you take away all the glucose, that brain is still functional because it's burning ketones. So you have a very different physiological response.
1: Okay. Can you clarify the difference between therapeutic and nutritional ketosis?
0: Well, I think therapeutic and nutritional ketosis are the same thing, or okay. uh, very similar. This difference, this is a very different situation than ketoacidosis,
1: right.
0: that which is very, very un, unphysiologically high levels of ketones, usually associated with type one diabetes, uh, where you have both high blood sugar and high ketones together in the blood. This is a very dangerous metabolic uh, situation. Very different from therapeutic ketosis, um, uh, where the body is, is gaining a health advantage by burning ketones.
1: Now, your interest in ketosis, your sort of exploration of that, did it predate some of your findings with um, the metabolism of cancer, or was it vice versa?
0: No, it did predate because we had been working with ketogenic diets in epilepsy. Um, where, which is the f- area where most of this research has been done. Um, and that goes back to the 1920s um, when, when people were finding that, you know, to stop epileptic seizures, if the people would stop eating for several days. The seizures would disappear. But, you know, this is not a, a, a long-term uh, therapeutic uh, uh, situation. So, you know, what happens when people stop eating Blood sugar goes down and ketones go up, and um, some of the physicians of the day try to replicate this physiological state through a dietary intervention, which would, which would allow blood sugars to remain low and steady and ketones to be elevated, uh, using a dietary uh, approach rather than you know um, fasting. Which brings us to starvation, and you can't be healthy when you're starving, so these diets were designed to replicate the physiological state uh, of fasting
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's well known that therapeutic fasting that's the inanition stopping of eating food uh for several days to weeks is generally a very um, is a state of great uh health again you don't do this for extended periods of time because then you enter into the the realm of starvation, which is in a very pathological state, um, as you know, mm-hmm. but before you hit the starvation uh, threshold, uh, fasting and therapeutic ketosis can be very healthy.
1: So I'm just curious now: uh, Do you practice intermittent fasting? Do you do water fasts, or, or if so, like what what's your protocol for working those into your routine?
0: well i don't do it as much as um people might think you know um uh if i were to have cancer cer- certainly i would do these things um you know 18 hour fasts uh which are really you know very minor in 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 state um i do that quite often but uh, three day fasts you know i did that once it's it's not easy the older you get the harder it is you, young guy like you, you should be able to t- handle that, no problem. My students can handle it. But you get guys in their 60s and 70s, and you tell them, okay, let's stop eating for, you know, five, three to five days. And they say, you do it and tell me what it's like.
1: <laughs> but wouldn't you argue then that, I mean, that's a sign that they need it more? I mean, you just talked about well, that, that flexibility.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, the, the issue, of course, is uh, your brain over years becomes... Um, set in certain ways and um, glucose addiction is a very powerful addiction. Um, You know, it's every bit as strong as it can be in some, for some people every bit as strong as a cocaine or alcohol addiction. Um, It's hard for the brain uh, to, uh, in other words, when you start lowering blood sugar, the body physiological changes go through a, a withdrawal of physiology. That's every, bit as similar to a nicotine withdrawal or an alcohol or drug withdrawal mm. the difference of course is that um, the body evolved over millions our bodies have evolved over millions of years to to exist in a in a semi-starved state um, so you know we're really not we just have to break that that barrier to the glucose addiction and then we enter back into the into the physiological condition that we really evolved in which has always been a semi-starved state because food was only available uh, when you could catch it or um, um, you know, uh, have it in the environment at, that, at a particular season. Um, it wasn't always a constant uh, um, high level of, of high carbohydrate, high energy foods. And now we find ourselves in a, f- in a very different environment uh, leading to a, a whole range of chronic illnesses. Uh, that that results from uh, this new what we call a new uh, food environment.
1: Yeah, that's very well said. Um, so I guess let's sort of dive into what you have discovered uh, or, or you know written about and, and spoken about with cancer being, um, uh, in your words, uh, a disease of of mitochondrial. Uh, it's a it's a mitochondrial metabolic disease, right?
0: Yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and 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 I think that's the uh, the issue that needs to be that needs to be addressed and, and understood uh, by people. Uh, not only the lay the lay public, they the lay public seems to understand this better than than do the professional scientists. Um, that cancer is a mitochondrial metabolic disease.
1: Why do you think that is?
0: Um, it's, it's because of the indoctrination that most of these folks have been subjected to over the years. Um, it's quite recognized that cancer is a genetic disease in all the textbooks. And most of the scientific research done and sponsored by the National Cancer Institute, the National Institutes of Health, is based on the hypothesis that cancer is a genetic disease. So if, you're, if you have been a person who has received significant money over decades of research looking for gene mutations in cancer and all these other kinds of things. That's kind of an addiction also, and it needs to be broken uh, because that that line of research and that uh, emphasis um, has amounted to very little progress in our management of the disease. And it stems, the, the little progress that we have made in cancer over the last 50 years has been due in large part to the, the false or the misunderstanding of what the nature of the disease actually is. Once we understand that this is a mitochondrial metabolic disease, then the kinds of therapies and approaches become totally different. Uh, diseases can be married, managed non-toxically, uh, very cost-effectively, non-toxic therapies that are we, we now see are beginning to work. And this will change the entire perspective of what uh, of what this disease actually is.
1: Well, and I think now's as good a time as any to remind our listeners of a few things. Number one, uh, I'm not a doctor. Um, This is not medical advice. Uh, Dr. Seaford is on the show because his name came up in an episode uh, a few weeks back. Go check that one out. We had uh, Eric Remensperger on the show. And Eric... um, is a cancer survivor. He was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. It was a nine on the Gleason scale. It was inoperable and he healed himself without radiation or chemotherapy. And uh, among the resources that he used, um, you know, some of that was uh, Dr. Seaford's work. Some of it was uh, the book Tripping Over the Truth, which uh, has your name on the back and a lot of your work inside it. Uh, You have a book as well um, cancer as a metabolic disorder or metabolic disease. I'm sorry. We'll have links to all of this in the show notes for you guys. Um, so one, one slight, uh, I guess not pushback, but just a a question then, um, there is a study out that, that recently came out saying that, um, Uh, estimated 40.8% of incident cancer cases attributable to exposure of the 24 uh, risk factors included in this analysis. So basically, they're saying that, you know, these these risk factors, you know, are the environmental things that can lead to cancer, which would support that it's not a genetic thing. My question is, what about the other 60% of cancers that were not attributable to those risk factors?
0: Um, well, we we broke down the origin of the disease um, to show how all of the risk factors, uh, whether environmental or genetic, target the mitochondria. So, um, and that means the genetic risk factors are secondary, not primary. Okay. Um, if you're if you're exposed uh, to a various what we call carcinogens, carcinogens damage the respiration in certain cells. Um, uh, populations of cells in tissues and organs, uh, putting them on the path to forming a tumor. So people know we we, we avoid carcinogens because mm-hmm. carcinogens are cancer-producing agents. How do they produce cancer? They damage the respiration in the mitochondria of the cells, forcing the cell into a fermentation metabolism, which then produces reactive oxygen species which then produce the mutations that people find in these tumor cells. So the mutations themselves, somatic, what we call somatic mutations, not mutations that you inherit in your genome, but somatic mutations are produced uh, as downstream products, epiphenomena of the damage to the respiration. So viruses can produce cancer and people say, how does that happen? Viruses damage the respiration in the cells, the mitochondria thereby forcing the cells into a fermentation metabolism, thereby producing a whole array of different mutations. Inflammation uh, can damage the same thing. So then you have your inherited mutations, like BRCA1, BRCA2, the leaf from many. There's a variety of so-called inherited genes that predispose you to cancer. Uh, These genes also damage the mitochondria and respiration, producing a then a plethora of other kinds of somatic mutations. So we, we then view the inherited conditions as secondary, not primary. And the reason for that is some people inherit BRCA1 and they never develop cancer. Uh, they, they have the gene, but the gene does not, in those people, damage the respiration, therefore they do not get cancer. Same with the leaf-round many, this is called penetrance. It's like, if I what is the probability that I'll, I'll manifest the disease uh, based on the fact that I carry the gene? So then if you look at the whole population, you find that the BRCA1 is about 40 to 50% penetrant, which means that 50% of the people who have the gene develop the disease, and 50% of the people who have the gene don't develop the disease. So what's going on with these? But only the people that develop the disease where the gene damages the respiration. The other folks, and for one reason or another, mitochondria were protected. And we're not, so this then puts the whole cancer perspective into the idea that it's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. So once you realize that, then the strategies, what, it's a very simple disease once you realize that. And the other thing is that all these cancers are the same, whether it's a brain cancer, a breast cancer, a colon cancer, um, bladder cancer, they all have the same metabolic problem, very similar metabolic problem. They ferment. So if these are fermenting cells in, every, in d- different cancers, then, then, then what does that mean? That, well, the, the fermentation metabolism requires only fuels that can produce energy without oxygen. So what are these fuels and what are the major fuels that are driving the disease? It's glucose and glutamine. So what happens to the cancer when you take away the fermentable fuels? They die. So um, the same strategy can be used to treat and manage the variety of cancers. And uh, today we have 1600 people a day in this country dying from cancer. It's a silent epidemic that no one's talking about that has a very clear metabolic solution that very few people either understand or are willing to address.
1: I don't think cancer is silent.
0: No, I said the epidemic is silent.
1: Okay. Right. Because you Uh, don't hear
0: anything about this. You don't hear every night on the news if we had sixteen hundred people a day dying from some other condition, right. Oh, it would be all right. over the news. Are you kidding me?
1: Right, right. Or if sixteen hundred people died, you know, overseas from you know in our military, we would hear about that. On a daily day. basis, you right. would
0: definitely hear about it.
1: Right. right, right, right. Okay. I see what you're saying. Totally understand that. Um, well, I want to highlight a few things um from your work and, and ask you some questions on these to to sort of elaborate. Um you know, so one of the things that, that you found when you started looking into this, and you you sort of touched on it here uh, a second ago, but when, when we restrict calories, um, it drives down blood glucose. And that's regardless of whether it's a normal diet or a ketogenic diet. And that forces cancer cells to compete with healthy cells for fuel. My question is, why is that so effective? Um, why do our healthy cells win that battle?
0: Well, you're asking the normal cells of the body, uh, which also use glucose, uh, to upregulate transporters to get more glucose in there. So they're now, putting direct comp- they're now directly competing uh, with the tumor cell. If the glucose is abundant in the bloodstream, then uh, there's no competition. the the tumor cell will be able to suck in as much glucose as possible, the tumor cells, and the normal cells will not put any pressure because they don't need very much glucose, they're so energy efficient. When, When tumor cells are fermenters, so a fermenting cell is a very metabolically inefficient cell, so the raw material to drive that cell must be present in abundance, whereas the normal cells are much more energy efficient.
1: So it's you're so, it's, it's, it's sort of when, when we're not in a caloric deficit, we're sort of putting our healthy cells in this sort of malaise where where they're not uh, they're not motivated. They're sort of too comfortable. Well, we don't not-
0: we don't want to look at it in, in, in that light, but but essentially, it's it's very similar. It's a it's a similar physiological situ- situation. Okay. Uh, when when the body is in a energy energetically stressed situation. The efficiency of every cell in the body uh, must be at its maximum. Um, tumor cells are clearly not in that group. They're, they're fermenters. They're, they're not using energy efficiently. As a matter of fact, autophagy, which is self-eating, self-digestion, increases during calorie restriction in these energy efficient states. So inefficient organelles within cells are digested for the good of the cell or, or inefficient cells are digested for the good of the whole, mm-hmm. so every what we are ending up with then is a body that's supremely qualified to generate energy at maximal efficiency uh, if we have a, sur- a surfeit of of energy, these um, monitoring processes are rarely engaged so uh, so cells that are inefficient are more or less not not surveilled not not eliminated, and they persist uh, which then would lead to risk of developing a tumor dependent on fermentation metabolism.
1: Okay, no, that makes great sense. So, I mean, that, that could be another sort of benefit that, that we lump into that list of benefits for fasting or intermittent fasting is that it sort of promotes self-selection throughout all of the cells of the body.
0: Yes, yes. It would keep us in a, in a high state of, 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 of physiological health, a okay. higher state, let's put it that way.
1: Right. Right. Um, so then you guys in your research, you took that a step further and, you know, not only were you limiting resources, but you switched the resources from glucose to ketones. Um, you know, we haven't even really talked about this yet, but you know, that, that's been a big part of, you know, your book and and your work.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, ketones in order to metabolize ketones, a beautiful fuel, um, uh, they generate very few oxygen radical free radicals compared to the metabolism of glucose. It's a, it's a very sophisticated bioenergetic process. Um, um, so, so our bodies, our cells can all, uh, most of our cells, not everyone, but can burn, burn, uh, switch from, from metabolizing glucose for energy to metabolizing ketone bodies for energy. And um, the liver, of course, uses fatty acids for energy because they make ketones. They don't, they don't use ketones. But uh, basically, you know, we transition our whole body over to an alternative, uh, an alternative fuel. Um, and that requires good, healthy, functional mitochondria. So tumor cells are, uh, have various degrees of abnormality in their mitochondria in their, oxida- in their ability to generate energy through oxygen. Uh, oxidative phosphorylation so that part of the mitochondria seems to be defective and that's why these tumor cells must use fermentation either in the cytoplasm or in the mitochondria the mitochondria can ferment uh, amino acids uh, and glutamine is a primary amino acid so that that then dis- defines what the nature of the tumor is it's a fermenting machine that uses uh, fermentation ferment fermentable products. And ketone is not a fermentable product. Therefore, ketone cannot be used effectively by tumor cells. So if you flood the body with ketones and take away fermentable fuels, you're actually helping the normal cells get stronger and putting a a great amount of uh, metabolic pressure on the tumor cells
1: you actually found that that um that restricted ketogenic diet was anti uh, angiogenic right and, and yeah. that means it it chokes off new blood vessels to the tumor cells
0: yes so but the the issue of course is that the metastatic cell the cell that actually metastasizes um is a fundamentally different kind of a cell than other tumor other tumor cells so uh, yes, uh, um, calorie restriction, fasting, and ketogenic restricted ketogenic diets stop blood blood vessels, which can support the growth of a tumor. However, the metastatic cell is uh, doesn't uh, uh, it, it's evolved to live in hypoxic environments. Um, this is why anti angiogenic therapies are are will be largely ineffective. In fact, are. In stopping metastatic cancer
1: yeah, that 's really interesting because I hear a, there's there's a lot of um, like natural foods or, or uh, yeah I guess foods that contain natural phytochemicals or things like that that have been shown to be anti antiogenic but what you 're saying is that that they may not be as effective as some people think
0: yeah that 's right I mean if you want to stop metastatic cancer th- these cells uh, the metastatic cell is derived from our immune system it's a it's a corrupted uh, macrophage or leukocyte or one of these kinds of cells and they they thrive on glutamine so you could remove all the glucose uh, and and you could uh, remove all the blood vessels and these and these metastatic cells will still will still be surviving uh, they, they, they. Once you take away their fermentable amino acid glutamine, they and glucose, you have got to shut the front, the front door and the back door.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's only then when you start to kill off the majority of metastatic cells.
1: So, how do you do that? How do you, well, how do you that, close that, that?
0: You have to use like we published a paper recently with my physician colleagues and Don DiAugustino on the press pulse concept, uh, which is a strategy, a, a cocktail of drugs and diets and procedures. That are designed uh, to um, eliminate glucose and glutamine strategically, and uh, you need drugs. It's you know if you want to if you want to pr- resolve cancer, it's very hard to do it with diet alone. You, you're going to, but the diet becomes an extremely important component of the uh, uh, of the cocktail. So we use the diet as a, as a chronic stress on the tumor cells in the mechanisms that I just mentioned. And then we introduce hyperbaric oxygen, hyperthermia, insulin potentiation, um, uh, glutamine uh, targeting drugs, uh, all of which will uh, work synergistically together to degrade the tumor while enhancing the health and vitality of the normal cells. A totally different uh, approach to managing cancer than what we have today. Uh, in the majority of medical schools, which are almost clueless as to the nature of the disease. Right. So um, so our strategy, uh, I think, uh, we're pretty sure will we'll, we'll be the future of how we're going to resolve cancer.
1: So I noticed in that answer, you did not mention radiation or chemotherapy. Would it be your objective to try to avoid using those at all costs because of the damage that they would do to healthy cells?
0: Well, they put they put the body at risk for um, uh, inflammation uh, and other uh, uh, you're damaging respiration. You can, I mean, you put your your normal cells at risk. Right. Um, chemotherapies are toxic drugs. These drugs are designed to stop proliferation of the cells because it's assumed that mutations um, lead to uh, uh, dysregulated cell growth. So we're going to use t- toxic chemicals to break DNA and try to stop. All you have to do is take away the fermentable fuels, and you get the same result without the toxicity. Right? So why hyperbaric oxygen? We think kills the tumor cells in a similar way. Does radiation? Hyperbaric oxygen is a much less toxic approach. So, so um, you know why? So, I, I I don't want to get into the obscenity as to why we use these toxic drugs and radiation because it is an obscenity. And or um, uh, well, you
1: could you could sum it up with with the word money, right?
0: which is a kind of an obscenity in if you're trying to keep people alive and healthy.
1: Right. Right. Um, so I want to go back to glutamine. I mean, that's an amino acid, um, pretty prevalent in a lot of the foods we eat. So would one need to go on a pretty low protein diet to try no, to eliminate that? No,
0: no, it's, you can't, it's, glutamine, uh, is the most abundant amino acid in the body and uh it cannot be uh, effectively managed in my mind at least at this point by diet alone uh diets uh because we our muscles contain glutamine K- right. cancer breaks down our muscles the 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 tumor will get um glutamine uh,
1: is that is that one of the reasons that, that cancer uh causes muscle atrophy it's it's basically uh stealing glutamine from muscles as and, a okay, fermentable and, fuel
0: yeah and other amino acids as well Uh, But, you know, it's it's uh, it's an effective way to fuel the tumor uh, fermentable uh, uh, um, systems. Require an abundance much greater abundance of fuel than does a respiratory a respiratory mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. so respiratory systems are remarkably efficient, and they can use uh, the minimal amounts of ferment of, of, of metabolizable fuels. The tumor cell is a, is an ineffective system, so it will use glucose and, and amino acid fermentation to drive its, to drive its its, its, its growth so you, so the the idea then is you have to interfere. Uh, with these with these procedures. And also, the tumor cells will phagocytize engulf and digest inside the tumor cell itself. So you need drugs that will interfere with each one of these steps. But these drugs must be delivered, scheduled, time, and dosed, so as not to harm the patient. The key thing here is you want to manage the disease without causing any adverse toxicity to the body. Mm-hmm. So seeing cancer patients with bald heads is a clear sign that those individuals are being treated by people who have very little knowledge about the nature of the disease. So every time you see a bald-headed person, you know that person is being mistreated by someone who really doesn't understand the nature of cancer.
1: Wow, that's pretty powerful. I'm um, going to ask you a couple more questions then, uh, maybe um, f- from a preventative standpoint, if, if someone... Doesn't have cancer, and was looking to uh, protect themselves. You know, how do we protect mitochondrial metabolism? Uh, what, what would be some things that you would
0: well? Suggest? I mean, yeah, I, I think um, the best way to do that is therapeutic fasting. Um, people always say, "Can't can't you find an easier way?" Does <laughs> it have to be so <laughs> draconian? You know, it's like, oh, man, isn't there another way? Well, there is. I mean, you eat certain diets that are going to be uh, healthy for the the body overall and mitochondria. But the best way to get mitochondria healthy is to burn ketones. So you have to do that strategically. You have to lower the blood sugar and you have to elevate the blood ketones. And, um, you know, we published this uh, glucose ketone index calculator in Open Access and uh i think the app heads up health is using it for general well-being and health for people um it's a simple device it just calculates the molar uh, the millimoles of glucose and and the ratio of glucose to ketones and if the lower the number it's like a golf score the lower the number the better you are so um you know th- this this is a, a is a tool that allows normal healthy people without disease to know whether or not they're in a metabolic zone that's maximally efficient for keeping their mitochondria healthy.
1: That's really cool. Um, so a couple of things here then. We'll put a link to that on the show notes for you guys listening. Uh, we'll make it easy for you to find that. And that, that was the Heads Up Health app, and then I'll actually have a link to to uh, the index. Um we'll put a link to all the papers that we've mentioned as well as, you know, any research, uh, that you want to share with us, uh, Dr. we will, if you email that to me, I'll put links to that in, um, in the blog post for this. Um, so I guess just, just trying to dig for, for a specific recommendation then on the fasting, like how would we implement that? Would it, would it, would an 18 hour fast once or twice a week be enough? Should we try to do the, uh, water fast for three days every two months?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, since we started all this, um, uh, we're finding that that the lay public um, are coming up with some innovative ways uh, to, um, to enhance this. It's amazing. So once you define the parameters that you need to be in, then people find ways to get into those zones uh, that may not be as difficult as what we all thought might have been. So I've spoken to some folks who who uh, like to go on a uh, somewhat slightly restricted ketogenic diet, uh, lowering their blood sugar and elevating their ketones, and then going on a water-only fast. And they say the transition now becomes so much less uh, difficult uh, when making those kinds of transitions, as opposed to, okay, let's uh, just cut out all food and just drink you know, water uh, or green tea or something like this. This is hard. I, I tell you, after the second day, I mean, you're uh, it's not easy. Believe me, you're, you're ready to. You know, to right.
1: But, but I mean, if you can go two days, I mean, that's 48 hours. That's, that's pretty substantial and it makes a significant impact, right?
0: Well, it does, but it's uh, to really get the body into the zone of, 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 of surveillance where we're eliminating ineffective cells. I mean, you're talking about five to, to seven days, okay? 10 days, you know, you try not stop eating for 10 days. The, 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 the problem of course is that I haven't done this, but those guys who do it, you know the first five or six days is not is is very, very hard. I mean, you think people think they're going to die I mean that's how bad it is,
1: so to really get into that self selection phase for for all the cells of our body, we've got to get to that five to seven day
0: well, I think you have to stay in the metabolic zone uh for at least several days and okay. and I think that zone is is dictated by your glucose ketone index okay and, you know, and people have taken ketone supplements along with therapeutic fasting so my my colleague don Diagostino agostino from uh, university of south florida um, you know he's 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 been he's been showing people how you can really bring those uh, the gki down to really low levels blood sugars in the 25 to 30 milligram per decal you know most physicians would say you should be dead
1: <laughs> yeah you know right,
0: um, right. but you're not and and that's because we're body, we're burning the ketones uh, so, so, uh, how long can you stay in these metabolic zones? How, how uh, in this? But you have the, you know, there are guys on the web. If you go out and look at GKI guy, they've been doing a fasting for ten days using our GKI to to maintain their their zone of metabolic efficiency but you don't want people to go overboard with this stuff. You know, you'd be surprised how many of these people become fanatics at this. Right. Oh, I can do it longer than you. I can get a lower blood sugar than you. And you know, higher ketones than you. I mean, what is going on here? Right. uh, They've
1: lost sight. They've lost sight of why they're doing
0: it. Yeah. I think that, you know, it becomes a the challenge, right. You know, the, um, so, but you know, notwithstanding, I, I think for the majority of people in the population that just would like to know that there is something that they themselves can take charge of and do to uh, maybe once a year or whatever, it makes them feel good. You know, it just, it just says well, it's a, it's tough to do, but I did it. And I think I feel a lot better. Right. Um, and, and that's, I think the ultimate, the ultimate goal of this.
1: Yeah. I think you also kind of, you know, if that was, the outline for people looking for preventative, uh, I think you've also sort of outlined a template for, you know, the, the treatment protocol, uh, if someone were to be diagnosed with cancer, um, I, I know you couldn't get into this, into specifics without, you know, knowing the individual, but if someone were say diagnosed with cancer, uh, or if somebody listening has a family member or a friend that, you know, gets diagnosed And they want to send them this episode as a resource. Where would you direct somebody recently diagnosed with cancer trying to figure out their best course of action?
0: Yeah, well, you know, this is an important problem, probably the singular most important problem. It's a tragedy. Um, You know, we know what to do. Uh, We have some physicians who who can do it. The problem is the system, the way it's set up now, prevents us from doing this. in other words, using drugs and diets and procedures in a cocktail therapy, not involving radiation and chemo, is just not acceptable to, to treat somebody with cancer uh, like this. So, um, and that's why some of these uh, really important and and um, evidence medicine is coming from outside the United States in Turkey. I'll I'll send you the paper because they're they're achieving remarkable success. In applying this metabolic approach, this press-pulse strategy for cancer patients, with remarkable success, for a broad range of stage four cancers. Now, what what we do in this country is well, we might consider a metabolic approach only after you've had the standard of care, and for brain cancer, that's devastating. I mean, you're getting irradiated and poisoned, mm-hmm. and you're expecting to get healthy uh, after something like this. This is this is not uh, not in the in the. What's going to happen? So you need to take these metabolic therapies, and you need to do them first. And uh, and we're seeing when people uh, do that without the toxicity, the responses are remarkably better. Now this is going to be a very hard pill to swallow uh, for the for the for the strategies in this country that we can manage this disease without uh, without these toxic treatments. And of course, the argument is from the establishment is, well, where are the clinical trials to document this? And the question is, you'd have to change the structure of the standards of care to allow these kinds of studies to be done. And they're based on such fundamentally hard scientific evidence, it becomes difficult to deny that this would work. And so they said, but we don't see the clinical trial. First of all, who's gonna do the trial?
1: Right, it, well, and that's that's the biggest, to me, it, that's the biggest obstacle that, that people like you face with, with getting these clinical trials is that the people who fund clinical trials will not fund this hypothesis. That's, because because if it works, then they're gonna lose a shitload of money.
0: Oh, that's, we call, you know what we call this? A disruptive technology. Right. Only it could be the singular greatest disruptive technology in the history of medicine.
1: Right. Well, and, and you mentioned Press Pulse a few times. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about your book. We've talked about this book, Tripping Over the Truth. Um, and, and the Press Pulse is in there, page 174. Uh, they mention your name, they mention our friend, and, and you mentioned Dom's name a few times. Um, and then again, your book is Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. Uh, can we do a, a little giveaway and, and give one or two copies of your book away to our listeners?
0: Um well you have to try to convince John Wiley Press of that. Okay. I, ha- I so far I have not been able to get even free <laughs> books for myself.
1: All right. I tell you what, I'll I'll you know, buy I'll buy one.
0: Try to, try to do that because um they're translating the book into Chinese and I think some other uh other languages as well. You
1: know, That's awesome. If, Congratulations.
0: Yeah. If I want my a copy of my book, I've got to buy a copy. You know, it's <laughs> all
1: right. Here's, here's what we'll do. But I'm gonna it's buy cheap.
0: It. Unfortunately, it's
1: not cheap. I'm gonna buy a copy. And for you guys listening, uh, share this podcast on social media, tag me so that I know you did it, and I will choose one winner and (laughs) send you a copy of the book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. Yeah, and if Um, they send
0: it back to me, I'll sign it and send it back to them.
1: All right, there you go. You guys heard it. You can get an autographed copy that way. (laughs) Um, All right, Dr. Seaford, this has been great. Um, Two more questions for you. Number one, if our listeners want more of you, where can they find more of you and your work?
0: Well, I, I think we're doing a lot of podcasts. Um, we're doing uh, a, a lot of YouTube videos. Um, there'll be a movie uh, out on, on the cancer series in dogs. Actually, I didn't mention anything about the dog stuff, but the dogs are responding remarkably well to metabolic therapies. Wow. And can- cancer in dogs is just as, uh, just as much of an epidemic as it is in humans. And the dogs are doing remarkably yeah. well.
1: Briefly, are are you taking the same mitochondrial approach?
0: Oh yeah, same thing. Well, yeah. that's the thing. The all the cancers are the same.
1: Yeah. So the Ketosis so- for dogs.
0: Yes, exactly. It works really well. Is they Dom
1: is Dom is Dom manufacturing doggy ketones?
0: No, not yet. But but uh, we're giving them raw meat diets, keto diets, and uh, hyperbaric oxygen. Oct- we're doing the same thing basically. Wow. You know, with some drugs, and this is another indication that all these cancers are the same. So when you have uh, people running for breast cancer, colon, brain, it's all the same disease. People have to understand these are not, cancer is not, you hear this on the news, cancer is a thousand diseases. No, it's not. It's a singular disease of energy metabolism. All these cancers respond to the same therapy. And this is like, what, how can you explain this? Because if you understand the basic uh, biochemical problem in the tumor cell, all this becomes completely explainable. It's, It's not that complicated. We people make it out to be such a complicated disease, you know. We're cutting out livers and cutting out colons. You don't need to be doing all that stuff. You know, it's just you can shrink those tumors down. I mean, half the surgeries we don't need. The chemicals we don't need. I mean, this is just, just when you when you start to look into it, it's going to be unbelievable. Yeah. So, dogs, yes, the dogs. So there's a bit a big movie coming out. It's called Dog Cancer Series. I think Joe Mercola has a, a movie come or a series of movies on on diet and disease. Um, so there's there's a number of different uh, uh, mediums that are are, uh, are are starting to show this work, and the lay people are getting more and more educated about this. They need to know. They need to know about this. Um, so I I think the change the change will come probably from a grassroots. Very unlikely to come from the top medical schools. They have too much to lose as the result of this.
1: Right. Right. Uh, so if you guys are listening, go to naturalstacks.com. I will put links to um, all of these things, uh, the, the book, um, bios, uh, everything that you guys would want to follow up on. I'll put a link for you guys to do that as well. Um, final question, Dr. Siefried: your top three tips to live optimal.
0: Oh jeez, you know, um, do things you like to do. <laughs> That's stay 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 stress free, you know, and try to fast whenever you can.
1: <laughs> all right, all right, we we can do all of those. All right, uh, this has been great. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. Uh, for you guys listening. Uh, remember share this episode on social media, tag me and natural stacks so that we know you did it. We will get you a copy. We'll choose one, one winner. We'll get you a copy of the book, uh, cancer as a, as a metabolic disease. And, uh, hopefully we can get that autograph for you and get it back to you. Um, share this episode with, with people, you know, who will benefit from the stuff that we're talking about. This is how we grow this grassroots movement. This is how we help more people and get this information out there. Um, and. Of course, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Let us know how much you like the show. Uh, If we read your review on the air, we will hook you up with a little care package. And that's it. Thank you guys for spending some time with us today. Dr. Seafried, thank you for all you you do. Thank you for your work, your contributions, and your time with us today. Okay, thanks.